0: Um, our reading today comes from Acts chapter twenty, starting at verse thirteen. So that's Acts chapter twenty, starting at verse thirteen. <clears throat> we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were beginning to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When we met, when he met us at Assos we took him aboard and went to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day, arrived in Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone without about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. My name's Phil. I'm the associate vicar here at Christchurch Mayfair. It's my privilege to be talking to us from Acts 20. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we ask that you would indeed inform our minds and also that you would change our hearts so that we might share the attitude that we ought to have to one another, that we might view one another the way that you view us, amen now i was um, I was ninety nine percent encouraged by something that happened uh, at church last week, so the uh... Obviously we can't get as many people in as we're used to at church and there's a booking system and both of the evening services at 5 and 6.30 were oversubscribed, full and oversubscribed. But some enterprising individuals worked out how to hack the booking system on church Suite, and a whole bunch of them uh, turned up with extra tickets that we had no idea had been uh, booked. I love that dedication to church perhaps not quite so keen on the admin headache and the breaching of COVID guidelines that it almost risked um, as we had to try and work out how to get extra people in and, and space them properly. But there's a bunch of people who get churches really worth getting to and they're willing to do anything to get there. Now, as we, uh, as we come out of a time of severe lockdown, I mean, who knows what the next month or two will, will contain, but as we, as we start to get back into the habit of coming to church again physically, For many of us, the last few months have been a time when our horizons have shrunk. And our world has become quite small. And so what I think we need at the beginning of this new church year is a fresh vision of the value and the importance of the church family. To look out again, to stretch our eyes beyond our bubble, our household. And Acts 20 is all about the church And this chapter in particular, I think, will help us answer two questions. Firstly, what should be our heart attitude as we come to church? What should be going on in here? What attitude should we have to the people we see around us? And secondly, what should be the heart of the activities that we get involved in in church? With all sorts of restrictions, what things do we say, no, no, we've just got to do that. We've really got to do that. Whatever else happens, we've got to do that. So what should be our heart attitude and what should be the heart of our activities? That's how we'll look at things in the next couple of weeks. Now, we're in Acts 20 uh, for three weeks, last week and the next two weeks, and we saw that uh, Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. We should have a, have a map. And on the way, he's visiting all the churches that he's planted in his third missionary journey, and he's going back around encouraging everybody as he returns to Jerusalem. Uh, we heard about his visit to the church in Troas last week, and this week... Luke tells us in more detail about his meeting with the the leaders of the church in Ephesus who traveled to the port at Miletus to meet him. So verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Paul probably spent more time in Ephesus than anywhere else outside of Jerusalem. So three years, we're told, more or less, that he spent there. It's a church he knows and he loves. Now, this sermon of Paul is, is addressed to, um, if you look at verse 17, the elders, or uh, the other word for that is presbyters, verse 17. They're also called the overseers later on, which is the word from which we get bishop uh, in English, and then shepherds or, or pastors in verse 28. So throughout this passage, you get three different terms for groups of leaders, but it's not three different groups of people. It's just three different ways the New Testament talks about those who lead the church. So clearly, this is going to be a very, very important passage for any who are involved in church leadership, for the elders, the deacons, the discipleship group leaders, the Sunday school teachers, but actually, this is a passage that is relevant to all of us and not just those with an official position. Now, I say that because the New Testament calls all Christians to serve one another. The New Testament is full of one another commands to teach, to admonish, to encourage, to warn, to help, to love, to serve. And the things that leaders are told to do in the New Testament, they're not different from the things other people are told to do. It's just that leaders have a particular responsibility to to set the tone and lead in doing those things. So here's the key thing. Ministry, that is serving others in the church, is not the preserve of the ordained few. It is the privilege and calling of the whole church family. In, In the New Testament, in biblical Christianity ministry is not the preserve of the ordained few. It is the privilege and calling of the whole church of God. Now this is the only time in Acts that Luke records what Paul said when he preached to Christians rather than to to people who are not yet Christians. And so presumably Luke records this because it says, look, when, when Paul addressed a group of Christians to encourage them, this is the kind of thing that's typical of what he said. And what I want us to do is, uh, rather than work through um, the first 10 verses or so this week and the next 10 next week, because the themes are interwoven, we're going to look this week all the way through to work out what heart attitude we should have as we gather. And then next week, we'll come back and work all the way through to look at what should be at the heart of our activities. And this week, we'll see our heart attitude should be that we should be servants of Christ and next week, servants of the word. Now, getting the heart attitude right is crucial because unless our heart attitude is right, everything else is going to go wrong. Everything is is shaped by what our attitude of heart is. Uh, if you like, it's kind of like the government's exam results algorithm. <laughs> if that's wrong, then all the results that come out of the other end are going to be skewed, uh, way skewed, awfully skewed, terribly skewed. So if your heart attitude to, to, to how you should relate to other people in church is wrong, then all the stuff you do will be wrong. So this is the thing we've got to get right first. And we'll see uh, we're to minister as servants, we're to minister through suffering, and we're to minister with deep love. Firstly, we're to minister as servants. Now, as, uh, um, as Helena read it for us, I wonder if you notice a particular feature that stands out. So Paul is addressing the church. It's his last words to the church saying, look, this is what you've got to do. I'm going to be gone, dead, soon. And this is how you're to live if you're to remain healthy. But out of 18 verses, only four are direct exhortation, telling them, do something, do something. The other 14 verses are actually a description of what Paul did, describing his own ministry and behavior, rather than instructing them what to do. Verse 18, when they arrived, Paul said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. He spends most of the time telling them, this is what I did. And that's because Paul was a good leader. And he recognized that like all good leaders, he needed to do a whole lot more than just tell people what to do. He needed to set an example himself first and foremost. He states it explicitly in his letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, he says, I I follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And the first thing Paul tells us about his example in this sermon is that his time among them was characterized by service. Verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility. And with tears and in the midst of severe testing. Humble service. Not, I led you with vision. Or, I taught you with enormous clarity. Or, I shaped you through my strong, decisive leadership. All those things were true, though, of Paul. But what Paul stresses is, I served the Lord with great humility. Now, Paul does not have a problem with authority and submission. He knows he's the apostle authorized by Christ uh, to, to build his church amongst the non-Jewish people. And he's quite happy to, to apply his and assert his authority where he needs to, as in the letter to the Galatians, where they're going, uh, they're going away from biblical Christianity. And he says, no, no, as the apostle of Christ, I tell you, stop it, turn around and come back. But his preferred description to a healthy church is, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And the word for servant is a very humble word. It, it's the word that includes slaves in the New Testament. It ought not to surprise us if we know anything about Christianity because Jesus himself, in Mark ten forty-five, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Humble service ought to be the defining characteristic of Christian, Christian ministry and Christian leadership. Now, I think this parallels what Paul says in verses 33 to 35 towards the end of this sermon. If you'll pardon the pun, these verses, they cash out what it looks like in practice, in one respect, for Paul to be servant-hearted in his relationship with the church. So verse 33... I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Paul worked part time so that he could serve the church of Ephesus pretty much full time unpaid. Now, both Jesus and Paul recognize it is right to pay people for ministry. But Paul is very clear, it is a wonderful privilege to not need to be paid, but instead to provide for yourself so that you can give of your time and your money to others. See, the heart of God is self-giving love. And any genuine encounter with Jesus changes our hearts so that we're more like that. And so every true follower of Jesus longs deep down to be generous. We no longer relate to others, hoping that we'll be net receivers, getting more than we give. Instead, we long to be net givers in every relationship, to know the blessing of being a blessing to other people. So firstly, fundamentally, we are to relate to one another in church as servants, Let me make this plain. There is no ladder to climb here at Christchurch Mayfair. You don't start by, well, when you arrive, you do some practical jobs, but after a year or two, you graduate onto being up front, and that's when you're important. It's not like that. The most exalted positions in the kingdom of God involve humble service. Jesus Christ shows that when he gets on his knees and washes the feet of the men who would desert and even betray him. I think of a previous church I was at um, as a teenager in the States. Um, There was a guy who was one of the senior elders at the church, big church, well over a 1,000 members, big, big church, and he was was a big man in his world. He was uh, basically the top intellectual property lawyer in America, pretty much. Incredibly important man in his profession. Uh, Flown all over the world and, and America on big cases, and he was a senior elder at the church, and yet every Thursday morning in term time, the youth group, which was quite big because it was a big church, had a, had an early morning sort of, um, gathering for youth to bring their friends to hear something about Jesus Christ. And from before six in the morning, he was there every Thursday, not up front on stage, but cooking pancakes in the kitchen and then washing up afterwards for decade after decade. Never seen by anybody, always in the kitchen, cooking pancakes and washing up because he got that, Well, that was that was something that needed doing. And so he did it. No ladder to climb. Why would you? Why would you stop serving practically? No, he loved to serve. He loved to serve. And so the question we are to ask is not how can I find something to do in church which will enable me to shine? Which I hope is a question none of us would ever ask explicitly. But we we don't look to say. How can I exercise my gifts? What we look to ask is, where is there a need that I can meet? Who could use my encouragement today? Now, Paul shows us that as we come to church, we come with an attitude of humility and a desire to serve others. Is that your attitude? I know it's not always mine, but all of us need to pray. Perhaps make it a habit that as you walk across the threshold of church, as you come through the doors... You pray, God help me to come to serve. God help me to serve. Minister of servants. Secondly, minister through suffering. I think the second thing we learn from Paul's example is that he served in spite of great suffering. So verse 19, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And then verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Ministry was just not easy for Paul. Uh, The stress and heartache and seriousness of it had him in tears often we see here and he was attacked verbally beaten physically and lived in constant danger and that wasn't just a short term thing until those trials were over and he could get back to normal his normal was suffering verse 23 i only know that in every city the holy spirit warns me prison and hardships face me but that doesn't stop him from suffer, uh, from serving because what matters to paul is not how can i be comfortable but how can i be faithful And I wonder whether the danger for many of us is that when suffering hits us, whether it's financial or health or or painful draining relationships, when, when suffering hits, our response can be to withdraw from serving until we get through the crisis, until we get back onto an even keel. Now, don't mishear me. We must, of course, ease some pressures when we're overwhelmed. But beware the thinking that says, I need to be sorted and strong to be useful. At the heart of Christianity is the cross. We're saved by the wounds of Christ, by his being broken and poured out for us, not by his being strong. And it's no surprise as we follow a, a wounded, broken, suffering savior that often we are most useful when we're most broken. Jesus says to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12:9, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness.'" I think of some here who limp through life with chronic health problems. Uh, They place an undeniable limit on the things they're able to do, but they're always looking to serve in spite of that. Such an encouragement to see. Others who've had tough times, but instead of growing bitter and turning in on themselves, in the pity, they are looking outwards to serve God's people in spite of it all and the truth is that serving others is so often restorative it's so often how god heals us as we serve others suffering is whether we like it or not a normal part of life in this fallen world and if we don't serve others when we're suffering then we might never serve at all So paul served through suffering thirdly a minister with deep love uh, much more briefly the, the third thing to notice it's not something that's explicitly thought, uh, taught but it is just there throughout the deep love between Paul and the people uh, verse 31 for instance so be on your guard remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears what love he had 36 when Paul had finished speaking he knelt down with them and prayed they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him what grieved them most was his statement they would never see him again The model of ministry that Paul commends here is not the detached counselor who relates with a sort of professional distance. It's more like the stressed parent who lives and dies according to the welfare of their deeply loved, troublesome children. Paul's warnings came with tears because he loved these people. And Paul's farewell was met with tears because they knew he loved them. Now, that is one reason you need to be part of a church where you know and are known by others. The great preachers of the Internet, they can't know you or love you, and you can't know them. The biblical pattern is relational Bible teaching, where we know and love and are known and loved by those who teach us. I think that's particularly necessary because, as we were hearing a couple of weeks ago, an essential part of any healthy relationship sometimes is saying, I'm not sure you've got that right. And none of us are perfectly like Christ. We all need challenge and rebuke at times. And it is hard to hear uncomfortable truths, but when they come from some faceless person on the internet, you can just ignore them. Much more likely to listen and eventually take on board when they come from a loving friend. Healthy ministry looks like humble, servant-hearted attitude, it looks like ministering in spite of suffering, and it's driven by deep, sincere love. Not the comfortable love for self, but the costly love for others. Anyone else think that this is basically an impossible bar to meet? It's just impossibly demanding. You read Paul's ministry and you think, if that's the pattern of church ministry, great, another area of the Christian life I'm failing in. But thankfully, as well as modeling for us and teaching us how we're to serve one another, Paul also provides for us the motivation. And we find it in verse 28, as he shows us how God views the church. Look at verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. The church which God bought with his own blood or with the blood of his son. Imagine uh, a couple get engaged and after the warm glow of the proposal, the fiancé asks, so where, so where did you get the ring? I hope you didn't spend too much. Uh, translation, I hope you absolutely bankrupted yourself. I'm worth it. But, um, the, uh, and, um, and her soon-to-be groom responds, oh, don't worry, it didn't cost me anything at all. It's not a real diamond and I found it in the lost property box at the back of church. Oh, how wonderfully frugal of you in these economically challenging times, darling, (laughs) she doesn't say. You see, the amount somebody spends on you says something about the value they place on you. Caveat, 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 of course. But you know what I mean, don't you? It costs me nothing. can very easily convey, you are of no value to me. What's the value of the church? The blood of incarnate God. The church. I mean that, that often ungrateful bunch of unworthy misfits. We who so often wallow back in the sins that God had rescued us from. And who are ashamed to speak of the Jesus who was willing to die in shame for us. And God looked at us and said, I love you enough. I love you enough to die for you. You're so precious to me that I will pay for you with the blood of my own dear son. You, we, were bought with divine blood. That's the value God places on us. And we should look at others around us, our church family, through that lens. When serving others at church, just feels like a hassle, if we're honest. Uh, When it... Feels too much of an effort when the people we try to serve seem ungrateful, unresponsive, dare we say it, unworthy of our efforts. That is the time to remember Acts 20, verse 28. Richard Baxter, a reformed uh, Puritan, wrote, we've got a picture of him somewhere, I think, um, that wrote a, a book called The Reformed Pastor. It's an exposition entirely of Acts 20, verse 28. And he puts it in these rather punchy words. Let us hear these arguments of Christ whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless. Did I die for them and will you not look after them? Were they worth my blood and yet not worth your labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and save that which was lost? And will you not go to the next door street or village to save them? How small is your labor and condescension compared with mine? Have I done and labored so much for their salvation? And was I willing to make you a co-laborer with me? And will you refuse that little that lies within your hands? Look at the value of the church to God. That's what motivates and drives our service. These people are worth the blood of God. They're worth the effort of our hands. The other thing I think that really helps us when we're struggling to get the right heart attitude uh, and when we're struggling to serve other people is the Godward nature of Paul's ministry. It's very easy to miss it. But in setting the pattern of church ministry, do you notice what he does and doesn't say right at the start? Uh, Look back to the beginning, uh, to verse 18 and 19. You know how I lived. The whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served you with... no. I serve the Lord. Sometimes, when you're struggling to love a particular sheep in the flock, it helps to remember that ultimately, you, we are not serving them, but as we serve and love and bear with them, we are serving the Lord. And He is always worthy of our efforts. These are Paul's final words to a church he loves. They're the only sermon to a church that Luke records. And the attitude of heart that Paul in this central, crucial chapter calls us to is humble service of God's people around us. Sometimes people will ask you when they arrive at church and and you seem to have some kind of a role. They say, oh, what do you do here? small group leader, staff, tech team, elder, crash volunteer, um, whatever the you do here, it might not be helpful to say what I'm about to say out loud, but actually the voice inside our head should automatically trigger when we're asked that question, I'm a humble servant of Christ and his people. If we get what God has done in purchasing us with the precious blood of his son, if we get what Paul has modelled in pouring himself out for the church in the New Testament, then as we look at one another, our first and fundamental attitude of heart will be, I'm a humble servant of Christ and his people. Now, that doesn't come naturally to any of us. So we must come close to Christ For he alone can breathe that attitude into us by his spirit. Let's pray for that fresh perspective on the people around us and our renewed desire to serve them and be a blessing. Our Father God, we uh, thank you for these challenging words of Paul. We thank you that he does not speak without having first walked the walk. And our Father God, we confess that... um, So often our hearts are looking to be served. Our longing is to be net receivers, not net givers. And so we pray that you would change us. We pray that we would view the church the way you view the church, worthy of the blood of your Son. We pray we would view service here as a great privilege. And we pray, Father, that we would see the service of others as the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that at the start of this church year together, you might work deeply into the hearts of all of us, an attitude of humble service that delights to give ourselves to others. For your glory's sake. Amen.